Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Victor, thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. It's a true pleasure to have you here. Hey man, it's great to be here. Thanks. So a lot of really interesting subject matter I think we're going to dive into today. You are one of the first sort of ESG-focused investors that we've had on the show. Uh, you recently raised a new fund. Um, so that's another great topic to start. We haven't talked to anybody who's kind of uh, gone through that process recently yet. Um, but first, I think we'd all love it if you could just walk us through your background and how you uh, got into VC and how you arrived uh, at where you are today. Cool. So happy to you know, I think I got to VC in the most unconventional, untraditional way, right? I like didn't go to the right school, didn't have the right degree, didn't have the right networks, like had none of the training. So of all things, I started out my career as a trial lawyer, um, going to court every day. And so, you know, I'm going to court every day, screaming and yelling and fighting with people. And like, I mean, these people at night at these events who are super happy about what they're doing. They're actually building things while I'm destroying things. I was like, hmm, that looks a lot better than what I'm doing. And those happy people tend to be either entrepreneurs or investors in those companies, right? And the quickest way I knew to get from where I was to there was, well, I just will scrap this trial lawyer thing and go open up a law firm that represents technology companies and investors in those companies. Um, and so just left my kind of cushy law firm job to start my own firm, um, without really any experience or clients, um, built that up to enough, a big enough firm to keep five lawyers busy. And, you know, after kind of stalking one guy for like two years to try to get his business, he finally said, I'll never hire you or your firm, but I will bring you in as my first general counsel for my software company. And that kind of got me into the flow of like raising money and, dealing with investors, managing cap tables, and, and actually in the belly of the beast on a software company. Um, always knew I wanted to be a VC, just had no freaking idea how I was going to get there from, from where I was. And, you know, just kind of fast forward the tape. And, you know, you, I woke up at my desk and I was at a large financial services company um, on the brink of managing a $330 million venture fund um, that focused on in fintech insurance. So I think, you know, the, the lesson there being like, you can get into venture and anyone can do it and you can do anything you freaking want. It just might not be the same path you thought. And it's definitely going to maybe take a lot. It will take longer than you think. You just got to stick at it and keep fighting. So it's so fascinating. I think, you know, from your perspective in your career journey, um, was there kind of a defining moment when you knew not only do I want to just be involved with startups and general counsel and, and advising them on, you know, the legalities of the early stage uh, process, but I want to be actively, you know, taking risks into these companies. How did that sort of uh, motivation for you develop over time or was there a defining moment? Like I always knew I wanted to build like, and I wanted to help create. And like, I thought I was doing that as a lawyer, but not really. And then, so like, I'm sitting on the staff of a Fortune 100 company, Fortune 100 company, um, chief information officer, chief technology officer, chief information security officer, and head of business operations. And like, I'm responsible for giving them all the legal advice to them and other companies. And like, this company was like an early adopter of lots of technologies. I'm like, all right, we got to start doing deals with these companies. And their response to me was, well, we are. I'm like, no, we're just buying shit from them. Like we're relying on them for some key strategic initiative, whether it's in the IT and call center optimization 
or desktop virtualization or how to sell more cars and insurance and car loans online. Like we're relying on these companies. They're relying on us. We got scale and rigor and process. They got innovation. Like the best way to align is by putting money at risk with them. I'm like, let's invest. Like let's, they need us. We need them. Like we're going to make them a better company because they're going to learn about our industry and we're going to give them resources and access to executives. And the response I got was, shut the fuck up. We don't do that here. If you keep talking like that, you're going to get fired. I was like, I don't belong in a Fortune 100 company anyway. I'm going to get fired. So like, let's have some fun along the way. And I just kept beating that drum and like, you know, one deal turned into another deal, turned into an IPO, turned into a couple of unicorns. And like, Eventually, they're like, ah, oh, let's give this kid a chance. And there was a $100 million fund, then a $330 million fund. And then, you know, once you're really there and you've kind of built out the process and refined your skills, and you just got to keep refining them every day because you, you screw something new up every day in this business, right? You just try to not screw up the same thing twice. And so it's just like, okay, how do we keep going? How do we get bigger? How do we support more entrepreneurs? How do we help them grow? How do I kind of refine my ta- my skill, my craft as to how do I best work with people and who are the best people for me to work with versus other guys or gals on my team and, and who could really help? Because it really comes down to, at least for me, you win by helping. And so who can you help? Yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 again, love that story and, and how you're able to sort of successfully pivot your career based on kind of an intrinsic feeling that you wanted to be on the creation side of yeah. things. And I, I'm curious because I think there are a, a good amount of lawyers uh, or people who've gone to law school who end up in venture capital. Um, and I'm wondering from your perspective, obviously, my assumption would be, you know, the post deal term negotiations, you know, you can walk through a term sheet pretty quickly um, and, and you have that sort of uh, advantage. But are there other areas that you sometimes think, you know, your background in the law in the, you know, in getting your law degree and being an active lawyer gives you a unique perspective on the investing on the actual job of investing or helping companies grow? You know, I think. I think it's a good background, but it's no better or worse than any other background. You know, anything that kind of develops your communication skills, your analytical abilities, your people skills is great to help you in venture, right? You know, I, I always tell people like, you know, if I was good at math, I would have got an MBA, right? If weren't good, guys and gals weren't good at math, we went and got JDs. Like, don't, I don't want to hear that from your venture investor, but, you know, it's just us talking, so we're okay. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so, like, of course, that like gave me the skills to understand like term sheets and financing cap tables and stuff like yeah. that. I think, you know, it's just a good, it was good training, but no better or worse than I think any other training that's out there. Because sure. what I tell everyone is there's lots of ways to be successful in this business and there's lots of ways to get in. You just got to find what are the tools and resources you have at hand for you to kind of get there. And I think that the big thing is like when you're the lawyer, you're like, you truly, if you're doing your job right, you're, you're kind of, you'll provide maybe 10% advice on the business, but you're 90% on the legal and how does that legal affect the business? When you're on the venture side, you're like 110% strategy and people and another 50% like, you know, details on things and, and the legal side, you know, it's really, you're getting more, you go from the quantitative, I would say to like the qualitative when you get, get the venture. Although obviously there's a quantitative aspect to it in diligence and things like that, but it's really more about the people at that stage. Yeah. And that's, you know, we have listeners, a lot of listeners of the show, I think are kind of early twenties um, or mid twenties, kind of in the early stages of their career and they want to be in venture and long-term. And it almost sounds to me, you know, 
sort of stepping back from what you're saying a little bit is, you know, maybe is, is part of your advice you give to young people sometimes if, if you want to get into VC, kind of figure out what your edge could be in and then double down on that and, and really spend time crafting your unique skill set that you could bring to it? Yeah, you know, the, the advice I give to people um, that are just coming through their careers and then want to get into ventures, like first and foremost, like be super grateful for the job you got now. Like don't keep thinking like venture will be better and this will be better and that'll be better and this will be better. Like be super grateful for what you do now because the more grateful you are for what you're doing now, the better you'll be at it. Yeah. Like whether it's, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's consulting or some other professional services or something non-technical related, like be grateful for what you're doing and be really good really good at it like be the best person at that job whatever the hell that is right and then from there like just think like okay what do i think i'm better at what do i want to be better at that's going to enable me to really cover out a niche for it it's like yeah i'm better on the quantitative side or if i'm better at the strategy or the sales side like even if you're like in a non-technology based you're a great salesperson great we all sell and and so how do you take that and translate that to how you can be more that kind of uh, maybe a sales oriented VC that helps in like the original initial go to market, or maybe you're not the go to market guy. Maybe you're like the enterprise salesperson to help people as they scale up into bigger deals. But I think, you know, be grateful for what you're doing, be the best at it, what you've got, and then think about how you can leverage that into some discrete aspect that tries to differentiate you from other folks that are out there. Or you have that skill that complements other people within VC. Like maybe you're a great HR person. Right. And so you bring that in for sales or whatever it is. Yeah. And too, I mean, it's it's so true. I I spent four years uh, at a big investment bank right out of college. And, um, you know, throughout the time, I only realize now uh, being more removed from it and having now worked in VC for a year, I only realize now the skill sets I was building at the time and I didn't realize it, but how they are still applicable to what I do. And I think that's also true for people, no matter what industry they're working in, you know, you could be in financial services, you could be in HR, but HR tech, you know, FinTech, like there's ways if you're trying to break in, I think to leverage your past experiences, no matter what they were. Um, but I do have to ask a question about, uh, as a, as a bona fide trial lawyer, uh, favorite tv show or movie that really got it right for me it's suits like i just love suits so that's my favorite lawyer show but i have to ask you what's your favorite lawyer tv show or movie you know here's the thing i think every show got it wrong because it made people <laughs> be lawyers and then once you are a lawyer like yeah. how do i get out of this right they're like this is not what was this show was like yeah no links each other this much these law firms are completely dysfunctional and like it's not like the what i thought it was going to be so i think you just kind of take them all as like you know um uh, as mildly entertaining and then just kind of take it from there yeah probably talk to actual lawyers and go visit a real law firm before everybody should do that yes Um, well, I'd love to get a little bit into energy capital ventures. I, I think I'd love to hear the background and how the idea came to you that there was such an exciting opportunity in, you know, the ESG space, um, that, that you wanted to strike out and, and start this new venture capital fund. So sure. Let me, I'll start a little bit like how we got there and then kind of what we are and hopefully awesome. I'll have the right points on it. So, um, when I was looking for the next opportunity I had, like, like everything else, 
you call the people you know and you call the people you've worked with in the past and, and the people you trust. So one of the first people I called was my partner, Rick Fatone, my current partner here at Energy Capital Ventures. Rick and I had served on boards together. We co-invested together. I got to know his other partners um, through other deal flows and just trading ideas and concepts. We've been together both socially and professionally. Just always liked him, always liked the team. And interestingly enough, um, he's with a firm, IA Capital, and their model is to raise money from corporations and invest um, to provide strategic value back, but for financial gain. So they raised from insurance companies and banks, right? Play the tape back. My whole career has been like large financial service companies, large insurance companies, and running corporate venture programs and then traditional uh, venture programs. So I was like, Rick, I, you know what you guys do and what I'm doing, like it's perfect. It's time for us to do like a big fintech insure type fund. He's like, this is awesome. Been waiting for you to come off the bench. It's perfect. We're talking about doing a new fund. But it's not going to be in fintech. I'm like, what in the hell are you talking about? He's like, take a look at the energy space. Talk to the CEO of this utility company here in town and this one down in Columbus, this one in Indiana. Just talk to these CEOs. Let me set you up with them and, and tell me what you think. I was like, all right, man, whatever you say. Like, I trust you. So, you know, you read the analyst reports. You read the articles. You sit in the CEO's office. This with the two amazing offices. And, you know, what I'm hearing is like, the same thing I saw in Texas, in California, and in Munich. It was the same executives with the same problems. Their accents were just different, right? You had like a large regulated, uh, heavily regulated industry with an aging infrastructure, customer satisfaction issues, risk-averse cultures, people questioning their business model, new people they're competing against that they never thought they were going to compete against before, and this wave of innovation that they didn't know was either going to enable them or disrupt them. I was like okay, this is financial services 15 years ago. Like right. I get like, and I can help. Cause I'm like, you see executives like have the same problems. I'm like, okay, same thing we did early stage FinTech, right? Take the best of the innovation in that entrepreneurial ecosystem, combine it with the scale of the, the current incumbents. And that's where you got a lot of the unicorns I was able to invest with, right? Believe it or not, that's how Coinbase got started and the other investments like investments I did, Coinbase, personal capital, TrueCar, MX, clear cover, extend. It was like people understood the innovation with the existing infrastructure that was there and how to make it better. So I was like, okay, I can help here. And then I started talking with the entrepreneurs and start looking at a lot of these things people are investing in. I was like, okay, there's, there's a, there's a sincere opportunity there, but then also similar like what we saw in early stage FinTech, like where everyone's focusing on banking and wealth management and no one wanted to do this insurance thing. They're like insurance. Oh, that's the worst. Like, like, why would you bother there? That industry is not even going to be around in five years, right? This is 15 years ago, right? And then, like, play the tape forward till to now. Now, like, even in, here in Chicago, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting an insure tech fund here in town, right? It's like, it's all the rage. So I started looking at the powering utility space. Like, everyone's focusing on electrify, electrify, electrify this, electrify everything, solar, wind, electric, electric, electric. And, like, no one's paying attention to the natural gas companies. It's like... That's interesting. Um, and people are like, okay, everybody wants to decarbonize, but the carbon's over here in the distribution side of things and in the natural gas sector. And these people that are running these companies want to get green. They want clean energy. They want to transform. They want help. But like, they're getting very little attention. I was like, okay, I see this pattern again. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with other funds that are doing electric and the wind and solar, because I think that's part of the equation. That's part of the energy mix going forward. But 
natural gas will play a huge part of it. So I started looking at the fund itself, and it became clear that one will be the only early stage venture capital fund focused on the ESG imperatives and digital transformation of the natural gas industry, right? And leveraging the experiences we have before, so we have this unique investment thesis. I'm like, I want further competitive differentiation. So we differentiate ourselves with a deep engagement and then a strong integration with our strategic limited partners. So our limited partners right now are five publicly traded utility companies. So we have this tight bond with them and integration into their operations, into their strategy, into their planning. And so then we take that, I'm like, before I know it, and we've only been up and running since July, but I've already seen it happening. Like we've become this platform for innovation for the industry. Yeah. Right? Everyone's coming together. Like entrepreneurs know they want to talk to our LPs. LPs want to talk to them. Co-investors want to send their portfolio to us so that we can create something together. And for me, it's not even going to be, and for my LPs too, it's not the 15, 20 deals I'll do. It's the thousand companies I see. And how do I get that in front of everybody and get that there? And so that kind of gives us this platform for integration. It also gives us this great kind of channel and medium for our LPs to collaborate and then also reset the narrative on natural gas and reset the narrative to the ESG imperatives and decarbonization efforts that are there and the power of having clean, cost-effective, reliable, safe energy for people, right? And so we're getting to things around carbon sequestration and renewable natural gas and hydrogen, things that are 100% green, right? That are making a huge difference. And then people also forget about those, like it's ESG, right? There's an S in there that people forget about. Like not everyone out there can afford to put solar on their fourth house or their fourth apartment in Manhattan. Like, I love it when my esteemed colleagues and venturers start talking like that. I'm like, congratulations, you're 100% out of touch with the rest of the world, right? <laughs> I'm glad you just put geothermal retrofitted on your fourth house in Aspen. Good job. You're helping the environment. However, you know, most of the world still can't do that. And natural gas is going to be part of it, of their energy mix, when they're, whether they're residential, industrial, or commercial, right? A lot of businesses, a lot of communities can't afford that and won't afford that but we can make the energy they're getting a lot cleaner with hydrogen, renewable natural gas, and things like that. And especially like those solar panels and wind don't work really well when it's 25 below and the sun's not out and the wind's not blowing. Right? So yeah, would not play very well in Chicago in the wintertime. Didn't, sure. didn't play, didn't even play well in Texas when Texas did that. It's not even playing well in California where California's next five plants they're opening are going to be natural gas power. Right. So, I mean, so I, I feel like, you know, almost an aside comment, but it feels like to me that there's, there's kind of an underlying theme, I feel like to the, to the inception of this fund. And that's the sort of relentless curiosity that is required to make a career in venture capital. Um, you know, you, you, you and your partner, you saw an opportunity in, in a space that, it doesn't sound like you know you didn't have an extensive sort of natural gas background before before this fund, but just a relentless curiosity and, and sort of seeing a greenfield opportunity in a white space to launch a fund within. Is that something that you you would attest to and kind of it was the motivation in part behind uh, Energy Capital Ventures? Yeah, you know I think it kind of gets to what I think is one of the root cause problems with venture and in in Silicon Valley itself as well. It's like these folks think they know everything. And you can't know everything. You're not going to walk into uh, a guy or gal's office that runs a multi-billion dollar company and tell them how to run their businesses. Although most people in our industry will try to do that, right? And like you got to realize there's more you don't know than you do know. 
you can know more people than you can know things. And these people will share with you. And that's how you really get to help, right? And so for us, there was this curiosity I had, but then I'm like, okay, I still need more than just that. So our other partners that are in the fund with me, um, so there's Rick, um, Ray O'Connor, and Jeff Yingling with myself, like with them, there's 70 plus years of investment banking in the utility space there. There's over $100 billion in transaction strategic advisory advice for transactions for these companies, right? And so let me tag on my almost 10x MOIC and 50 whatever percent IRR and say like, okay, how do we bring this all together? But then flesh it out even more like our junior professionals that we're bringing on, the one that's here, Stefano Galeazzo. Stefano, of course, smart enough to get an MBA, smarter than me, right? MBA, also an energy engineer by training as he's coming up, right? Engineering background, MBA. Right? And then we get advisors behind us that are super deep in the space, right? You've got people like, you know, Chris Gould, who's the chief um, sustainability officer for chief innovation and sustainability officer for Exelon, now at the California Resource Company. Um, Jan Burns, who's got 800 energy consultants working from across the globe. Paul DeBar, the undersecretary of science for the Department of Energy. And so you bring a lot of that technical expertise around. To, to round things out. And then also, um, we work closely with the Gas Technology Institute here in Chicago. Um, David Carroll, their CEO, is on our board as well. And it's just a huge help around these things. So you, you got to be curious. You got to know what you don't know and be really upfront about it. Be authentic about it. Don't fake it. And just bring to the table what you can to help out people. It sounds like it doubles as advice for, and I know you've been involved in uh, as a board member in many instances in your career. Is that is that sort of line of thinking very much apply to the art of being a, a productive board member? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's there's I've been on lots and lots and lots, dozens of boards now, a couple, do, several dozen, right? And I think you just got to know where you're going to contribute. Like everybody likes to talk and try to impress how smart they are. It's like just shut up help when you can, right? And if someone's not asking for help, like don't take up the board meeting by offering it. You can pull people aside and say, hey, I think I can help you with this. Like, and those types of things. And I think you really learn that the best operating boards, people are bringing their individual experiences and their own kind of histories in, in, in professions as well as like specialties to the table to help that CEO and that CEO's team make the best decision. Because right? you're not going to make the decision. They got to make the decision. They got to own it. And you're just there to provide some advice and guardrails and also some reference saying, this is what I've seen at the last 10, 12 companies. Or this is what I've seen with other similarly situated companies. Or let me put you in touch with someone else in my network that I think can help you there. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious about for energy capital the sourcing uh, strategy you guys are going to have? Is it going to be outbound? Is it going to be, you know, building out the brand behind the funds so that you are the first call that a lot of these entrepreneurs in this space want to make? How are you thinking about your sourcing strategy in the future? Yeah, you know, to me, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that everybody sources. Partners, associates, like everyone's got to be sourcing all the time, right? And it comes from, it comes from, cold calls. It comes from podcasts. It comes from being a good board member, being a good mentor, whatever it is. And so everyone's got to be sourcing on things. But I think what we're doing differently here and what I've already seen the first month is like we put the message out there on how we have this deep integration with our limited partners and how we are intended to be this platform for innovation and to reset the narrative around natural gas and focus on those ENG imperatives and digital transformation. And like 
you know, you see it. We all see it. Like entrepreneurs are really freaking smart at that. They're like, wait a second, no one else is doing that. Like these other funds say they're doing it, but they're doing it mostly for the electric companies. Like no one's got like I have a decarbonization technology. Like of course I want to talk to the people that are in natural gas, whether they're at the distribution side, the midstream, or at the upstream. And so entrepreneurs have found it. They've gotten the message. Co-investors that I've worked with like 20 years ago are calling. I was like, I don't even know you're in this space. They're like, well, we didn't know you were in this space either. I'm like, well, you know, so be it. And so they're sending deals in. Um, a lot of the incubators and accelerators that are throughout the country that are focusing in this space now know they have a fund that they can go to that's purely in this space. So the amount of inbound, both from our limited partners, entrepreneurs, co-investors, accelerators, incubators, even some of the universities um, has been beyond my wildest imagination as to what I think it would do. And so I think it's just, it'll always be that healthy mix. And I always like, this is a sales and service business, right? So I never allow to lose sight of the fact that we're always going to be sourcing. Yeah. I, I had Steve Sanger on from Evolve, um, Kraft Heinz's corporate venture arm uh, a few weeks ago. And one of the topics we talked about was, you know, the benefit of being, uh, you know, a VC housed within an organization like Kraft Heinz is you can leverage some of their in-house expertise in the due diligence process. Do you see that as an advantage for energy capital with these relationships you have with your LPs to just constantly be a phone call away from a subject matter expert in the space? Yeah. You know, it's, you know, First of all, I, 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 I like the Evolve guys, Bill Pescatello, old work colleague, partner of mine, super smart guy. He's got a corporate venture background, as did I. And like we talked about, it, it's like you get to stack the deck. Like now the difference now is unlike when I was at other places and I just had one to leverage, now I have five, right? So I just don't go to one PL leader. I go to five that are distributed all across this country. Right. I've got LPs in Columbus, in Spokane, in Rapid City, in Phoenix, in LA. I mean, they're they're all over. And like they are all running multi-billion dollar public companies. Right. So I always just keep stress testing. Like I'll talk to one field engineer at one and then one field engineer at the other. And then I also want to go up to the CTOs. Then I want to go into the lines of business and I want to talk to the people that are actually responsible for a PL or hitting an ESG metric for their decarbonization, right? And so you really like the difference before, and one of our LPs kind of rid me about this. They're like, oh, it must be easier now. Before you just had one of us, now you got five. I was like, yes, easy. Um, but it's like, it's great to have those resources because it's awesome because there'll always be a different perspective. Like somebody will always have a different perspective, different experience with the technology, or the reason why it didn't work in one environment is different than the reason why it will work in another. And I think it's really good to kind of have that broader, diverse uh, perspective on things. And I'd love to dig a bit into the semantics behind um, the mandate at Energy Capital. So what stages will you be investing in? Um, if I'm a founder listening to the show, you know, uh, what can I expect from the due diligence process? We'd love to hear about just where, you know, the lane you guys are, are sort of operating in. Where we're at, where, where we're at now and where we'll be at for, for a while is we will be in kind of that traditional kind of Series A wheelhouse of things. Sure. I want to be that first major institutional check that comes in at the Series A. So that's validating the product that's coming out. There is some commercial traction. There is a little bit of validation, but I know I can, one, I can help to exponentially increase that growth trajectory through our network, through our connections, through our experience, and then also have the capital to kind of get them there. So 
right now, you know, we're looking at writing and, and things are changing, right? This market's getting hot. Mark, every market's getting hot. Prices are going up and up and up. But, you know, we want to write 2 to $5 million checks to lead some of these Series A uh, rounds and take it from there. Because of the deep technical bench strength we've got on our strategic advisory side, whether it's the GTI or one of the other chief innovation officers, like we and through the Department of Science as well, like we do, or Department of Energy, we do get some earlier access to technologies. And we also get to diligence technologies a little deeper because of some of this technical acumen we've got. So it gives us the chance to go a little bit earlier, right? And C, like, so it's like not C per se, but like C plus, I would say. So we're looking at things there. Um, you know, the, the diligence for us, so here's a kind of, Quick answer, you know, the diligence for us, like I'm looking at both a kind of a techno echno analysis, right? I'm validating the technology, but also that economic model going, okay, can this make sense, right? Economically, like what are the presumptions for the, the cost of production or the cost to deliver or the cost of energy to really make this renewable natural gas application work or hydrogen work, right? Because like, it's no joke. You look at climate tech or clean tech 1.0 and some of the Hardest people in nature created small fortunes because they started with large fortunes in the space and they lost their ass in a small fortune, right? So I, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. My partners entrusted me and this fund with their kind of most treasured relationships with these LPs, and I promised to generate them a return. So you know that there's that technological and then economic impact that we look at when we're doing these deals. And so I know it's seed and we'll be directly correct on this. And then a lot of it for me is spending time with the teams. Like I'm like, I'm looking at like, these are marriages you will be in, in that you will be in this for a long, 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 long time. You will be in this for a fun life period. Right. So I'm looking at the team and the person as to, is this a person I can work with for the long term? I, am I going to like be excited to take their three in the morning? I'm not good enough call. Like, can I help? And is this type of person that's good for our fund or good for me personally, if I'm going to be the board member versus maybe one of my other partners might be the board member. So a lot of it, I go back to team and team and team and team and team. Um, and that's kind of where I spend a lot of it. And I know like when I'm diligencing people, and that's what people like think people run away too quickly during diligence. They're like, Oh, we got a bad reference. Okay. Anytime someone wins and someone loses, guess what? It's never the loser's fault, right? It's always the winner did something bad. So, of course, they're going to give you a bad reference. Like, if you're getting nothing but shining references, like, something's wrong, right? So, sure. um, I've been doing this long enough to know I'm going to get different perspectives from people. And it's just, they're all data points, and then I got to bring it together. You mentioned, and this is a topic area that I, I fully admit that I am, um, have a surface level understanding of sort of the, the, Evolution of climate tech, you know, you mentioned 1.0, it seemed to fail uh, miserably in a lot of instances. And I did spend time as a metals and mining analyst at B of A. So I knew about the importance of ESG over the two and a half years I was there. It felt like more and more earnings calls, you know, ESG was getting mentioned, more and more institutional investors needed to start sort of reallocating their portfolios. I guess, you know, for listeners who may not understand, what would you say has been the evolution of the climate tech space, of the space that you are all operating in over the past, you know, 10 to 20 years? And why is now, you know, the most opportune moment in your mind? Um, we touched on it a little bit at the front of the show, but um, we'd just love to hear kind of your take on sort of the the backdrop. You know, I think when it comes to ESG, so I'll go above climate tech and, 
in, in into kind of ESG as the broader mandate. Like sure. the environmental pressures on these companies are no joke. They are real. They've all made pledges to decarbonize, right? So that's the E in the ESG, and right. They also the yeah. S. They have to serve all these different communities, and on the governance side, they need diversity. They need good governance, and they need those things, right? And so it's to the point where our LPs are mentioning their investments in our fund. To prove their commitment to innovation and prove their innovation, their their commitment to innovation in ESG to their analysts. Yeah. If you'd have told me five years ago, if you'd have told me six months ago, Vic, that like the president of one of our LPs is doing their analyst call and citing our fund as a way for them to hit their net zero emissions goals and for a way for them to access the innovation that they need to future proof their business. I said, you're crazy, but it's like happening. It's happening five times over. And so that's great. So there is that, that impact. I think what's different last time than now is like, there was just a lot of that, like there's that hubris that was there. Yep. That was there where people thought like the rules didn't matter to them. Right. The rules always matter, right? Both the rules of venture and the rules of industry. So if it's going to take, $100 million just to prove a technology works. It's going to take another $200 million for it to get the scale. And then after getting the scale, it's going to take another several hundred millions of dollars before it even gets to the side. You're like, you're like $150 million Series A fund. What do you think? Like, it's just not going to work, right? It's just not made. Like, so that science side, that first hundred million needs to get the rest other ways, right? And so people started investing in the wrong thing. So they, forgot about like the true venture model. And then they also thought like the technology was going to save it all. And like, just like, you know, go fast and break shit. And, like yeah. that, you can want to do photo sharing apps. Yeah. Go fast and break shit. Like, you want to do ESG or you want to do FinTech or insurance. Like right. do that. Right. So you want to take great care and respect for the industry um, and then understand the limitations of you as a funding source versus what these companies need to get. To, to get to both prove the science, get it to scale, and then get it to market. Yeah. No, that's that's so interesting. And I think um, it's also a topic that Peter Thiel covered in Zero to One. Is uh, He actually has a, a topic, a chapter dedicated to this. And I think he specifically calls out the hubris. And um, in a lot of ways, I think some people might have thought, uh, you know, take the Amazon model of just, again, go fast, break shit. and. Yeah pour, poor money and capital into this. Uh, but they're two, the economics behind a software business and, you know, a climate tech company are, are fundamentally different. So, uh, the rules don't perfectly apply. Um, I am curious because, you know, looking at your resume and, and looking at some of the companies that you have either directly invested into or been a board member of, or, or just seen grow over the years. Um, you mentioned some of the most, you know, impactful companies that, you know, it, we've seen in the past 10 years, you mentioned names, um, you know, ex- extend clear cover, um, you know, Coinbase, have there been moments or, or green flags that you've seen from some of these founders of these companies over the years, traits, characteristics that have informed your decision-making now as an investor, um, just have been been in the same room as some of these people for so, so much time. Yeah. I think, you know, when I looked, first of all, when I invested in all those guys, whether it was Kyle at ClearCover, Blake at IDMe, Woody at Extend, you know, Tim at personal capital, like all these guys at the early stages, like even Fred Isham at like Coinbase, like they weren't the guys not then, right? And so 
especially when it comes to like people that have a strong personal relationship, like like Blake called ID me and, and Woody Levin at extends like you just knew that couple things. One, they were never gonna quit. Like this was something it was bigger than them. Like what they're doing was bigger than their company, it was bigger about their personal wealth, it was bigger about their like ego. Like they were starting a company that was going to change the way the world looked. Even Fred at Coinbase, right? It wasn't like he really felt deep in his soul that this was necessary for financial services to work. Blake Hall realized early on that people were not getting access to the benefits they needed or were deserved through the government because they couldn't validate their identity. So how do I be the identity layer for the web? Like those people, like they had first of all the authenticity that this is bigger than something than them and they were going to build it. Two, they all, in Kyle especially too, they all had something about them that was like, I want to work with that guy. Not, not me individually, yes, me individually, but like they were going to motivate people to work for them. Like they were going to be the people that can motivate other folks to leave cushy Fortune 100 jobs and take one-eighth salaries and a bunch of equity because they believed in them, they believed in their messaging. And not only that, like I also saw their ability not to just not motivate and bring on and recruit employees, but you knew they're going to be the same way in that customer loop, like and in business development. It was like they had that kind of passion that brought people around. Right. And made people like want to work with them, want to buy from them and want to do their thing. But the also kind of nuances people forget, it's just not always about like every CEO has a way that, that they do it differently. Like it's not always about the alpha female or the alpha male, like even like I back female CEOs that care.com went to be publicly traded. Like all of them had a different way of doing things. Some were like over the top, like business development execution, like just hard-ass drivers. Others were more technical, like they're more subdued and that technical kind of engineering mindset also drew people to them. And so it's really got to figure out like of that CEO you're about to back and basically marry for at least the next 10 years and spend your time with at the extended family with, time with, your, fam- with your family or friends, like who else is going to like go around them? Are they going to be able to recruit those like tribes of employees and customers and partners and financiers, right? Like, is like, I'll write the check at the A, I'll do my follow on my pro rata, but someone's got to come in and write that big B. Like, will they be able to do that? And so that's what you got to see. And then you have to see out those CEOs, like, what is it in that trait? Like, like I said, it could be the engineering mindset. It could be that business development drive. It could be the product side of them. It's all different, different aspect reach. No, that's, that's so fascinating to hear. I partly like why I love doing this podcast to get to talk to VCs who've been in the room with some of these people. And you've had multiple exposures to just some of the best entrepreneurs uh, that we currently have in the ecosystem. Um, So it's always fascinating. I think beneficial for, to to hear some of those characteristics and those traits. And I I think it's actually a great point too, you know, to your point about um, almost the due diligence process with an entrepreneur can tell you so much about how they're going to go about, bringing in new business, bringing in new customers, how responsive are they? And just how do they handle the process? Um, I think that's, that's, that's so true. And I, I, I'd love to turn, um, you know, our attention towards Chicago. Um, you know, your decision to sort of be based in Chicago, launch in Chicago, uh, would love to hear about the, you know, that decision process. And, um, you know, we can get into sort of your thoughts around the ecosystem today. You're involved in a number of organizations here, including P33 um, and Chicago Next. So, you know, we can, we can, we can go there, but I'd love to hear just, you know, why Chicago for the fund? You know, I think, first of all, coming, coming back to Chicago was like the, incredible 
homecoming for me, right? Because I was here in like 95 through 2004, right? And then I went to live in all the places every VC wanted to live. I was in Texas for a long time. I was in the Valley for a long time. And then the opportunity came up to come back here. And like, this is where I got married. This is where I met my wife. This is where my son was born. This is where my in-laws are. My family's not far away down the road in Cleveland. Cleveland's kind of like a suburb of Chicago. Don't say that to people. Um, like, I can get back to my roots. I can get back to my family and like come back to this community. And then it was like, okay, we're out. Like it, like it was, it was a pretty quick decision. Um, and so to come back here and see what's happened since then, like back then, like, like two venture firms and they weren't necessarily real venture firms per se, right? They were like, you know, some rich folks with a Rolodex, like not even with AUM. So to see it now, you've got so many great firms across the front, across the whole landscape here. You got, you know, people do, like you, like, there's firms that you've got Hyde Park, you've got Chicago Ventures, you've got, you know, like you can just keep naming names. I hate naming names because inevitably you just leave someone out, but there's dozens of them and you see them all. And that like, for people to understand, like the concept of doing like an 1871, back then people think there's no way. You just know there's not enough startups, there's not enough energy, there's not enough, the corporates won't care and you'll never get that, right? And, and it is what it is now, right? And so just to see the community come full circle has been incredible just to see its growth and then to see these repetitive great success stories we've got here in town right to see sprout social right to see clear cover to see like in the new ones coming up and the growth stage companies that are here to see arturo to see these things coming up like it's all fantastic and that's why i think there's this great kind of ecosystem here um and it's like it's just fantastic to see it come around are there any kind of, you know, you mentioned you spent time in the Valley in Texas. Are there any sort of traits of those cities that you think um, in the long run, Chicago or, you know, founders here, VCs here should try to emulate or should try to adopt? Um, or would you say Chicago's kind of run on its own race and the culture and the ecosystem here are, are unique to Chicago and it's probably just not going to change? Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, we need to quit comparing ourselves to other places and just be us, right? And like, just let's be proud and authentic into who we are and build off that. If you focus on what you're not or what we think some other community is, like we just had that. It's like a fool's errand. One, you don't really know what it's like to be there unless you've spent years and years there. And then two, if it took the Valley since 1960 to get to where they are now, like you can't replicate that, and nor should you want to, right? And especially if you've spent time in the Valley recently, you don't want to, right? And so like leverage what we've got with a sense of community, with a strong venture community, with the corporates that are there, with kind of the, that kind of commitment um, employees have to their companies here versus like other places where they flip every 24 months to see who's got the next equity package that's there, right? To see that type of thing, like that, is real that's something you build a generational community around and so that's what i think we just have to focus on us you know the things we could take like i would like to see us i've talked about this a lot with folks and a lot of people don't agree with me on this i would like to see us kind of complete that capital stack if we got great early stage funds like i want to see mid-stage funds and later stage funds and i like i want my fund to be a whole lot bigger but i want to see a whole lot 
bigger early stage funds. And we're getting some, we're making traction. You just saw Jeff's announcement today for what they're doing in crypto and the last fund, so that's freaking awesome. But like, we need dozens of those, right? We need bigger funds, we need later stage funds because here's what happens. Like, I, like we all read Axio and you all, we all read term sheets, we all read everything else. Like, what, they report who owns the most of these companies on exit, right? Guess who owns most of these companies on exit, right? Even the ones from here, it's the later stage coastal firms that end up owning the most of our companies when they're successful yeah. and successful companies. Yeah. So I want to see us dominate there. I want to see us get there. Um, I'm taking it's my responsibility to get my fund bigger because um, what we had was just our first close. But I think like I'd really like to see us kind of get like – we should have four or five Sequoia state sized funds here. Like we should have our own IVPs here. We should have, we'll probably not tell you global, but we should have like later stage venture funds writing big checks into our local companies. Um, and then also have their headquarters here. So other people want to come here as a destination for fundraising. It's only going to be to the benefit of our entire community. Yeah. Now I, Personally, I completely agree, but I do know that I've had yeah, I've had some people on the show who will say that that isn't an issue, um, that that we don't need the later stage funds, and the uh, drive capital always gets brought up as well, you know, as an example of one that does exist. But why don't we have a drive capital based in Chicago? Why don't we have three of them? You know, so uh, I personally completely agree. I think it does. It's a great way to put it. The capital stack is just it's not fully formed yet, um, but you know, hopefully, as you know, you mentioned in time, uh, I would bet that it does does get there. I. Would love it, you know, if you want to give a shout out to any of the organizations that you work with, um, you know, here in Chicago. And, uh, you know, I, I'm curious about when you move back, it seems like you just try to get as involved as possible. <laughs> so we'd love yeah. to hear some of the places that you're involved with now. You know, um, I spend, um, we're fortunate enough on our fund to have Brad Henderson as one of our strategic advisors. So I spend a lot of time actually here and with Brad at P33, I think what they're doing, you can't put enough importance on. Right, because they're carrying that message to the rest of the country on the benefits of having a technology company here in Chicago. They're also raising the awareness for our local corporations as to the value and benefit of working with startups. So, like, that is some of the most important work that can be done here. Um, when it comes to supporting entrepreneurs and providing them the forums that are there, um, you know, 1871, super important um, to what te and Techstars. Techstars have always done. A lot of work with especially with the more focused ones within fintech but i think what we're doing with tech stars is super important um and i think with what we've got going with tech rise with the diversity requirements that are diversity requirements for success that are necessary it's like really important work that's there but um yeah to me it's like it's almost selfish i think of me to work with those companies because i take so much energy in working like with p33 and getting to their message and hearing what they're doing it's like helps me like get jazzed up about this place more than anything. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship. It sounds like, yep. You're both getting something out of it. There you go. Um, Victor, this has been incredible. I I'd love to, in our closing time, um, if there's any great resources or thought leaders in your space that, that you try and follow or that people who maybe have listened to this episode and, and think, wow, it really sounds like an exciting opportunity. I want to learn more about, um, you know, the ESG space and, and what, you know, sort of, you guys are all investing in any great resources you would recommend for people who are trying to get up to speed. Yeah. I mean, I think on, on the ESG stuff, like at least on our website, we're like really kind of front centers that this is what we're investing in. And these are the areas that are important to us. You know, you're seeing some great research come out of department of energy um, as well on the space. And just kind of seeing some of the, 
next generation technologies that are there. When it comes to venture, like it's all the usual subs, um, usual suspects that are out there on venture and where to learn things. I think locally, like everybody should be tuning in to um, TFR, to the full ratchet, to Nick Moran's show. It's great guests. You'll learn tons there. But I also think it's really important for us in venture to kind of step outside of the venture community and start to work on, you know, a little bit more of our ourselves to like, you know, get different perspectives. So like, you know, whoever your favorite mindfulness coaches are that are out there and online or your, you know, favorite podcast hosts, whether it's like Eric Thomas or and my left or whoever it is that kind of works for you i think it's really important to spend some time out there exploring and, and getting other people's thoughts and other people's perspectives and other people are bringing thought leaders to the table awesome victor such a great point and you know with that just want to thank you for coming on to chicago capital we really appreciate it congratulations again on raising the fund and it sounds like you guys are working on some really exciting stuff so we're going to enjoy watching you build uh, continue to build and uh, hopefully have you on in the future to uh, to talk more about energy capital ventures um, thank you so much victor thanks it's my pleasure i look forward to talking again take care